This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Have you ever been involved in some kind of charitable work or cause that afterward you realized maybe didn't do as much or the kind of good as you intended? I definitely have on a couple of occasions and one super eye-opening moment for me happened on the beach in the North Shore of Oahu a couple of years ago where I met Lindsay Hadley and she broke down for me the basics of what she calls the orphan myth. In today's episode, Lindsay goes into depth about the many myths around orphans and how many of us have intended to help but actually perpetuated a problem unknowingly around the world of separating children from their homes by way of funding many orphanages. Lindsay shares how this happens, why it happens, and what we can do instead to create better long-term solutions for children who need families and loving care to grow up around. Lindsay, I'm so happy to be talking to you today. And you are joining us from the North Shore, right? In Oahu? Hawaii. It's so beautiful today. I'm looking at so amazing. And the sun and I'm like, oh man, what a cool winter day. <laughs> yeah. So you and I connected through our sort of our mutual friend Spencer, although what the first time we met, Spence wasn't there. He was somewhere, I don't know. And his wife, Katie, connected us and we sat on the beach and you talked to me all about the orphan myth, which was so cool. And then like a year later, our our paths crossed again and we were able to really get to know each other. And then since then, you have given a TED Talk on this topic, the orphan myth. So I'm really, really excited to talk to you about that today. But before that, for anyone who isn't familiar with you, can you just give a little bit of background on who you are and what you've spent like the majority of your career doing and building? Yeah, thank you so much for letting me talk about this. I'm so passionate about these kids. Yeah, I, my background is in social impact, or for most people, they probably notice like charity work. It's a little broader than charity work because sometimes charity is kind of demarcated as nonprofit, right? Not for mm-hmm. or where you make donations and you have volunteers. But some of the work I've done is around social entrepreneurship, which is like businesses that make a difference in the world. Some people might think of them like, Tesla, where, you know, it's coming up with like clean energy solutions or Tom's shoes were like the one for one model, right? So some yeah. some endeavors are like for profit endeavors and some are non, but all of them have some social good, some like, you know, the do-gooder aspect or whatever. So yeah. work with Coca-Cola around their recycling, but I don't help sell the sugar water that Coca-Cola makes. You know what I mean? So like it's yeah. a different, uh, kind of a paradigm, but it's all purpose-driven work. And I started out my early career doing kind of boots on the ground humanitarian work in third world countries, like building schools and and clean water dispensaries and medical centers. And and I did a lot of like that kind of direct poverty development type work in communities. And then later went into like administration, fundraising, event production, strategy, that kind of stuff. And then later started my own little boutique consultancy that's done that. And I've worked a lot in the entertainment industry, like a lot of the like celebrity world and music industry world, helping them with their philanthropy. And then a lot of 
ultra high net worth individuals later and corporations, even institutions like the LDS Church and the Vatican I've worked with and they've been clients and we've done projects in partnership with them. It's been an amazing journey, one I never imagined. I grew up in a tiny, small town and grew up in a very like devout LDS family. And every, every, I didn't, I mean, I, I had one aunt who had like a, a job as a bus driver and a nurse to supplement income. And then I had another aunt on both sides of my family, another aunt that did some social works, like she was a therapist, mm-hmm. but I didn't really have any women in my life that both my grandmothers and mom, my grandma was a teacher, but both my mothers and most of the grandmother, most of the women in my community were all stay home moms. And so I didn't really ever have like a career ambition. I didn't expect it. Yeah. A crazy journey. Um, my patriarchal blessing talked about my vocation several times and I've, I haven't met many women that that was the case. I remember when I was 17, I just wanted to travel a lot and I thought I'd be like, like a flight attendant. <laughs> and my patriarchal yeah. talked about it because of my vocation, like I'll be an inspiration to people around the world and like that, that there was like a really clear spiritual purpose behind my vocation. And I'm like, how is passing peanuts and handing out drinks going to be an inspiration? You know, like I just... <laughs> I remember my dad, when I was in college, was asking what I should major in. And he said, oh, it doesn't really matter. Just to get a degree, it'll just be a stay-at-home mom, right? Like that was the paradigm I came from. So to right. I've been where I've been, all the heartaches, all the difficulties, all the pain, all of the beauty, all the wonder, all the growth, all of the magnificence, all combined, it's been really sh- just kind of a shocker, like a, a surprise. So yeah, that's my background. So why the orphan myth? Where, I mean, you kind of talked about how your career has woven through different causes, but where did the orphan myth specifically come into play? Oh gosh, I'm I'm so grateful to talk about this. So I, in 2015, I was uh, producing a big large scale music festival called Global Citizen. I was the executive producer and the chief development officer at this organization. Global Citizen is very well known to people in the East Coast, especially in New York, because it takes place Mm -hmm. every year during the United Nations General Assembly meeting. All the big, the world's biggest music artists and celebrities are on stage and we we, we leverage billions of dollars for the world's poor and funding commitments. It's, It's an incredible organization. And I was one of the founding members of that. And in the early days of this, I was backstage at the festival and Hugh Jackman, the actor and his wife, Deborah Lee Furness, were ambassadors to global citizen and they were about to go up on stage and I had like my headset on and I was like helping that usher them to the stage and mm-hmm. a mutual friend said Deb have you met Lindsay she's the executive producer she did all this they like pointed to the audience like she brought the majority of the money for this and brought the first artist and like she's kind of the CEO of this uh, of this event tonight so to speak this there is an actual CEO his name is Hugh Evans but she, this person was like being very generous to give me credit for my role Mm-hmm. And Deb was like, no, I, I hadn't met you. She had met Hugh Evans, the actual CEO, you know, but she looked at me and I'm such a fan of Hugh Jackman as everyone is. I mean, my goodness, he's yeah. magic. And he was always so kind to all of us. And I hadn't really known his wife, Deb, but she's spectacular. He, he will tell you like that he she's his better half. And I think a lot of people might agree, like she's a very special woman. Mm-hmm. She looked at me and very earnestly was like, can you do all this for me for orphans? And I was like, what do you, what do you mean? And she's like, oh, I'm, I adopted my two children and I'm so passionate about adoption and vulnerable children and getting kids in permanent loving families through either prevention, reunification and or adoption. She shared this with me and I was like, oh my gosh, tell me more. And 
She's like, actually, can you come this weekend? You're in New York right now because I'm not from there, but I was in town for the festival. And she said, can you come this Mm -hmm. weekend to this meeting? And she says, because I'm launching a global initiative about it. I've done a lot in Australia, but I'm going to do something globally. And so I proceeded to, to, I'm like, how do I say no to the Wolverine's wife? You know, so I went to her house. I went to her house on the weekend to learn more about this work. And she's really the one that introduced me to it. And it was so paradigm shifting and so eye opening. And this was like me, I had already spent a decade in the nonprofit sector, I think at that time, Mm -hmm. 10 years, and was very aware of, had, had volunteered in orphanages, had worked around issues of foster care and vulnerable children, and had dealt with people living in poverty and single parent homes and lots of kids living in trash dump communities and just literally felt blown away by the information I started learning through Deb and her initiative. And what I really found was that there's a lot of misunderstandings or myths around vulnerable children that are perpetuating the problem tragically. And I had been a part of the problem. I had done some of the things that have actually contributed to kids not being in families thinking I was helping them. So this was one of those kind of like heartbreaking moments, right? And since then, in, in partnership with the Fox River Foundation, which is a family called the Ritchie family that is backed up out of Chicago, we put together a campaign and initiative in Deb Dockman's Charity Helpland that I was initially introduced to all this through and helped her get started. We're all kind of partnered with, with 30 plus charities around getting this message out about these myths. So that was kind of the impetus for it. Well, that's really interesting. So I would love to go into some of those you know, things that like some of the foundational things that you learned in that first meeting? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. So the first one I learned, and this is one of, this is the one of the first myths we talked about in our orphan myth campaign, which again, think of this meta campaign as like, do you remember the got milk commercials, Corinne, in the 90s? Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. In fact, I used to tear those out of magazines and I had them like plastered all over my bedroom as a teenager. So yes, I very much cool. remember that campaign. Yeah. <laughs> you the know, celebrities so, with the milk mustache. Exactly. Yep. So it wasn't one milk company's commercial. It was, it wasn't a brand for like Horizon Milk or something. It was the entire milk industry at large encouraging consumers mm-hmm. to drink more milk. So yeah. all of them got behind one meta message and narrative and then espoused the same content, which then saturated the market, right? And like a rising tide, all the boats go up. They all benefited. It's really cool. It's called a meta campaign or a convener model. My firm and my career, I've, I've specialized in this kind of work for charities. Because if you think about it, charities often are viciously competing for limited resources and a retention. And they have... Yeah. The public demonizes overhead in marketing and, and storytelling and branding in charities, which is a whole other tangent that I think is mm-hmm. archaic and problematic. They should be able to invest in community of compassion like we do a community of consumption, right? Everybody else can spend money on getting you to buy more Happy Meals or more jewelry or makeup, but but no, you can't spend money marketing to people about doing good. You know, that's just silly. You know, they need to take market share. So anyway... One way around that is to get all of them to sh- all the charities to do one campaign together for an issue. And then they're like yeah. a choir singing. And so I've played in my firm and my, my team, we've played like a sophisticated choir conductor, if you will, helping them, these charities sing the same song. So they're louder together. And so the, one of the first myths that I learned at, uh, when we put together this, ca- this campaign later, but I learned at Deb's house was around the fact that 80% of all children living in orphanages are actually not orphans. They have at least one living parent. And that blew my mind. So think of this, like you go to an orphanage that has 100 kids, 80 of them will have a mom or a dad. 
or 10 kids, eight of them. I mean, that, that is the vast majority are not actually without parents. Some of them have ran away from home because of severe neglect and abuse, right? And they mm-hmm. ended up on the streets and then in an institution like that. But the vast majority of them have been placed there due to poverty and the fact that if you build it, we, we will come. So people living in abject poverty, often single mothers, will see the orphanage that we pay for as generally Christians. They're the number one funders of orphanages around the world. So $3 billion a year goes into funding from the Christian church into institutional care. $3 billion funding orphanages, and they're building them, and they're getting three meals a day and to sponsor an orphan and the churches that go mm-hmm. over and then do like we're remodeling the orphanage, we're building a new wing or we're volunteering for the week, you know, these short-term missions trips. And these kids are being placed there, relinquished by their mothers often because of the fact that they have to work so much or they can't feed them or give them adequate medical care or education. They literally see it as like a boarding school solution where they're like, this is the best option for my child. And so Mm -hmm. they put the child in, leaving them in orphanages, usually as a great and heroic act of love. But what's so traumatic about that is that the research shows, and it's like all the titular heads is like totally agreed. In fact, 193 countries have ratified a resolution called the rights to the child because the research is so definitive. But the UN, I mean, like all 193 countries have all said, yes, this institutionalizing of kids is not what could. Ultimately, mm-hmm. these kids end up way worse off than if they stayed with mom and or dad and mm. had one meal a day and no education. So 80% of all human trafficking victims in some regions, 90% come out of orphanages. So all foster care and or institutional care like orphanages, like almost all human trafficking victims come out of there. So they're the biggest, it's, it, the statistics are startling and they vary around the world. They're startling for sexual exploitation and abuse almost all of them have exposed by the time they get out to some sexual indiscretion and some sexual exploitation of some kind at various scales. Uh, The mental health, they're 500 times more likely to commit suicide. They are 76% of all prison inmates come out of institutional care. So foster care and orphanages, poverty, the cycle, the chances of having then children again in an orphanage or in in foster care, right, is, is tremendously high. So we're talking like, All of these societal ills that I'd spent my career addressing, if you go further upstream, could be addressed by getting kids in permanent loving families, by having them with a loving family where they belong, where their basic needs are met and there's love. You can avoid all this tidal wave of trauma in the world. And I realized so many things. It's like further upstream solving a problem than just treating the symptoms and putting band-aids on all these issues that I'd spent with like homelessness and mental health and sexual exploitation and all these causes I'd worked on for years. And I was like, this is the answer. So I became very passionate about it. So that was one of the major first things I learned. Yeah. And it's, I remember having this discussion with you on the beach about how there's so many people who want to do good and they have great intentions and they don't realize that the work that they're doing is contributing to this problem. Yeah. Which is, it is really eye-opening and fascinating. And so then, of course, I'm sure everyone's next question is, okay, so what's the better way? Like, what's the solution instead of just continuing to fund the problem? Yeah. And that's one of the saddest things is when people point out, hey, this isn't working well. You have to have a then, then now what? Okay. So we were wrong. Some of our helping hurt. Like, for example, another little ideation of like doing short-term mission visits to 
or volunteering in an orphanage, I had done this. So this is one of those, and I had helped fund orphanages and I contribute to this. But one of the things the research shows is that these kids, because they're almost all of them have parents and they've been abandoned essentially by their parents, right? Even though the reasons often are because the parent wants the child to have a better life, Mm -hmm. they've still experienced as abandonment from their caregiver, right? Right. These children, we then go pop in and we take selfies and we give them teddy bears and we play hopscotch and we just love on them for a week and then we leave. And what happens is they're then abandoned again by a loving figure, abandoned again and again. And it's like a revolving door. And they've, they're, they're now showing this psychological development in most of these kids that are in orphanages that receive a lot of like short-term volunteers like that. It's called radical attachment disorder. And so they actually cannot healthily attach to human beings. And it's very devastating to their lives. So again, here I was helping, holding these kids and they're like not being held and you think it's good. What they need is they do need love. They do need help. They do need people playing with them. They need all the things that we meant to do. They just need it as a relied upon volunteer. They need it to be a constant in their life. So unless you can go for significant time, then, then fund someone who can, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And more than anything, the money should be, so here's what we're learning. The money can be redirected to charities that are family-based solutions. Cause sometimes you need to temporarily, like there's an amazing documentary that talked about and I, I can't remember the name of it, but it was about in China, a lot of, there's been a, a major problem with the limitation of how many kids you can have. And then mm-hmm. culture historically, it's changing very slowly, but the oldest child and or the healthy boy takes you in and that's your retirement plan, right? It's like, this is their, their structure. They don't, they don't plan for retirement financially. They work hard in their youth. And then their oldest son, when as they're in their later years, their twilight years of their life will actually financially provide for them. So girls were like wholesale discarded for a hundred year period or so in China. So there's a lot of little girls in orphanages. And then also kids with special needs and disabilities are often abandoned in garbage dumps and everything because parents didn't have access to abortion or didn't abort. And then they don't want that child because that child will be a dependent on them forever. And they want to try again for another child and they're only limited to two children or whatever, one child in the country. Right. So there's tremendous amounts of special needs kids that are just like totally abandoned. So there's been a lot of orphanages that were created that just took them in. Well, if the parents got rid of them for that reason, they're not going to take them back. So in some instances, institutional care and temporary care is important while we look to find them families, but a lot of nonprofits are so focused on meeting their temporal needs, it becomes like long-term warehousing and the Mm. money, like growing a new wing and taking in more kids and taking, and then a lot of them get relinquished by parents in poverty, as I explained. And now you're dealing with, you're actually creating family separation crisis, right? So the charities who are aware that this is a problem and have a plan and are saying, first of all, we do prevention. We don't want families to be separated in the first place. So what awareness and education and human rights and cultural movements are they doing or part of or connected to that are helping parents not get rid of their special needs kid? Or how are they addressing policies that can reform this? Or, right, like, is the charity just symptom-based, just responding to the symptoms? Or do they understand the totality of the situation? Are they avoiding, instead of making a new wing to the orphanage, can we hire a couple social workers that can get them reunified and support families. Uh, There's J.K. Rawlings, the author of Harry Potter, created a a charity called Lumos, which is Harry Potter's word for light. And Harry, Mm -hmm. one of the most famous in uh, creative history and literature, and uh, most of our stories out of 
the creative world to come as orphans because it's the most re- example of the most resilient human soul. And she's been taking orphanages and reconfiguring them, repurposing them as vocational education centers. So moms and dads can come and use them as like daycare where their kids get education and help and the parents can mm-hmm. get better skills to become more employable, to have better financial income so they can ultimately take their children home, but they go home with mom and dad at night and the orphanage and the utility and the building and the people that work there instead are focusing on helping the family. It's more family-based than it is orphan-based institutional. We call it long-term warehousing. So this is like a new thinking. The second thing besides prevention is reunification. These kids, a lot of them, getting them back with mom and dad and finding out okay, well, he's not with mom right now because she was on drugs, but now she's sober and she just needs a job and help or this abusive boyfriend's now out of the picture or they they just didn't think they could afford the kids. So instead of the money going to like my, my darling friend, Marcus Mina, his mom, his dad left when he was a child. So she's a single mom. They lived in Sao Paulo, Brazil in the slums. And she mm-hmm. worked 16 hours a day just to make ends meet. She cl- cleaned on average four houses a day and would neglect him from age four all day long because of this, right? So just to get mm-hmm. basic food each day, she had to work that hard, making $1.50 to $2 a day in a living and an income for everything. They lived in a lean-to corrugated iron shack. And he would have to, as a four-year-old boy, all day long, no school, no education, no one watching him, roam the streets. And he would still apples from the market, befriended a little scruffy dog that he named Harry, funny enough, Harry Potter, right? Mm-hmm. And he'd met some missionaries, some Christian missionaries in Sao Paulo that gave him a Harry Potter book. And he taught himself how to read and learn English. It was like an incredible story. But his cute mom, realizing Marcus's well-being was in so much jeopardy, put him into an orphanage with these darling Italian nuns that, while well-meaning, gave Marcus a number. He became number 171 because there were too many children for Marcus to have a name. And Marcus waited every 28 days to see his mom. His mom would count the days down to take him to get ice cream. And Mm -hmm. she would come by and visit him and weep and then take the bus home. Instead of that money going and and generous donors like us would donate for that, those Italian nuns to feed Marcus number 171 every day and give him an education. And while his deeds were met, he had no love, creating severe anxiety and depression and of course separation from a mom that all of us can understand viscerally how could we be funding his mom not being with him what if the money went instead to his mother having a better job getting more educated having child care right what if those nuns had been the daycare that then marcus could come home every day right if the funding thought mm-hmm. that way and that's what many organizations are are morphing into which is wonderful and then in last case, you hope adoption. If there isn't an ability to go back, it's not safe, or they really are genuine orphans in a traditional sense, then they need to get in permanent loving families. Let's spend the money on adoption services, social workers finding adoption, especially first locally into extended family. Funny enough, we did this in America. That's why foster, we got rid of orphanages over 150 years ago. Like we knew in America, for the most part, that this was really traumatic. We saw the bad results. We said, we're done. And we created mm-hmm. temporary care in foster care. And it has all kinds of broken issues that need to be addressed. Mm-hmm. But it's so interesting that Americans are the number one funders of the very thing we got rid of for our children. Isn't that fascinating? That Yes, super interesting.
I guess if someone's listening to this and they're going, oh my gosh, I've donated or I'm sponsoring or I'm doing something or whatever, or or they're questioning like, am I enabling this or am I putting funds or resources or time or energy or whatever toward a cause that maybe I wouldn't be as aligned with if I understood what they were doing? How can people figure out what are the right questions to ask and how do you look for somebody who's enabling the right type of behavior that will keep kids in the best case scenarios or place them in the best case scenarios. Yeah, that's so great. And the the biggest thing I want to say is the initial feeling like I felt when I first learned this was shame. I was like, oh my gosh, I created more harm when I was trying to help, you know? Yeah. And I thought, oh my gosh, all those kids that would have been like, but then I'm like, no, 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 we can't think that way. We're doing the best we can in the moment. We just have to know that now I know, now I know, and I can pivot. And what's cool is like, and again, there is a lot of situations where there are very thoughtful and holistic and impactful charities doing great work in temporary care, right? Mm -hmm. The goal is, do they, are they incentivized? Because some charities, and if you look at like a bell curve, like if you know know what a bell curve is on a graph, uh, if you were to say over here on the far right was like the bad orphanages that everyone would agree is heinous. They're like human trafficking kids, taking them from parents and then selling them to adoption. And when the parents didn't even know that happened to a friend of mine, she literally adopted a kid, found out that she thought she was, her parents were dead, finds out she has a mom and misses her mom when she finally learned English oh. and they reunified oh, her gosh. mom and supported the mom. It was a, they were heroic, whether it's that or sexually exploiting them or lining their own po- pockets in the name of these kids and not actually taking care of them. Like the orphan Annie right. stories, you know what I mean? Like those, those stories that those are, do happen. And we all agree in society that's heinous and we need to root those mm. out and pluck them out and destroy them. But the bell curve, the vast majority in the middle are really well-intended and well-thought-out and very well-done temporary or long-term warehousing. And they're doing a great job in meeting all these basic needs, but they cannot provide the same value as being in a family. Some of them are better. They have like group homes where they're smaller so that the caregiver is like a mom. Some of them, Mm -hmm. there's all kinds of different things that are good, better, best, right? So okay. asking the first question of like, do they, are they aware of the situation? Have they, are they even aware of the better care movement? That's what it's called in the nonprofit. Mm. Cause some of them don't have any idea. The ones that do and go, yes, this is a problem. Here's how we're addressing it. Here's what we're doing. Right. That can make you feel a lot more confident. And if they don't, you could be the agent of change that informs them and you could help yeah. them differently. A lot of times nonprofits are deeply influenced by the benefactors, the donors, they kind of, mm. they say jump and they say how high because they need the money to do the work. And usually the incredible people that are doing the work on the ground that are building the nonprofits that they're actual administrators or operators of these things, they just want to help. They just are genuinely like there for the right reasons. The most of the vast majority, again, there's some that are, that's not the case that are nefarious, but the most of them are good people doing really good things and they're angels. And if you show them a better way and you help them with the process and then you're not critical and condemning, you're with them, amazing miracles happen. And then on the far left of that, like bell curve, as I described, would be this better care network, this better care movement which is like thinking family-based solutions. So the biggest thing I would say is you can go to orphanmyth.org and you can find 30 plus charities to donate to that are all part of the Better Care Network. There's an actual platform Mm -hmm. also called bettercarenetwork.org. And they have over, I think it's like 200 different charities that you can choose from. So if you have a certain region of the world that you love, or if you have a charity you're giving to right now, ask those questions. Okay, 
this is really tragic, but I used to work in the short-term humanitarian trips. And I think that they changed my life. When I was 17, I went to Kenya and and put me on a track to be a lifetime humanitarian. I spent my whole life giving back, and trying to help people and make the world a better place because of that experience that I had. They do amazing things. I think being aware of the nuances of like the posture of it, are they coming in as a guest of the country? Are they coming in as like a white savior? Are they coming Mm -hmm. in junk to the jungle? So a bunch of used clothes and then putting out local commerce. Here's a guy who's selling t-shirts down the street. You just put out a business. Are they like asking a lot of these thoughtful questions? I remember once one charity uh, operator, I said to her, I don't think this is good that we're doing this. She goes, it doesn't matter. We're the, 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 it makes the volunteers feel good and the donors like it. And it was just like, you know, that kind of thinking. (laughs) So yeah. 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 Right. And so you just got to constantly be aware that like, as we go into help, how can we like use the spirit, use our best thinking, talk to experts, ask good questions, just be humble, the posture of humility. Because I all the time, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm learning so much. And I make so many mistakes as a professional, a human being all the time. And so- Because you you don't know until you know. yeah, Yeah, you don't know what you don't know. I think there's so many great resources. I mentioned Lumos with J.K. Rowling's Hopeland, which is Hugh Jackman's wife's charity, dad's charity. There's so many great organizations that are doing great stuff. One Million Home is one of my favorites. They have a goal to get a million kids home. And so theirs is very focused on reunification. Mm-hmm. And they partner with all these organizations. And locally on foster care, I love America's Kids Belong. They help kids that are over the age of eight, which are have like a 0.02% chance of adoption. They help them get into permanent families. Because in adoption, that was another one of the miscreant is that there are... 400,000 kids in foster care in the United States at any given time. And a quarter of those, so 100,000 of them, are awarded custody of the state they live in, making them literally our orphans. So that means they'll never go back to mom and dad because of severe neglect and abuse. They are literally now wards of the state. They have Their parental rights have been terminated. They are now an orphan status. And a lot of people are like, I got to go to Mexico or Ukraine to help orphans. Like They're literally in your backyard anywhere you are. You don't have to, you can work with foster kids. I remember my friend, Rob Shear, he's amazing. And he has an awesome charity you can check out too called Comfort Cases, where he puts together these beautiful cases because most kids in foster care, when they transition into many homes, some kids are on average 13 different homes by the time they age out at age 18. Can you imagine 13 different families? No, no. And in many cases, severe abuse in those situations. It's just really traumatic. And they usually have garbage bags is how they, there's an image in foster care of the right. garbage bag is how they pack up their belongings to go to the next. And they, they don't even have a suitcase. So he puts these beautiful backpacks together that have like pajamas and stuffed animals and books and all this love to make them feel when they transition, just feel loved. And he was a foster child that suffered unthinkable horrors and abuses. And when I first told him about orphan myth, he said he was really triggered about the fact that we were saying he was an orphan because one of the myths is there are there are no orphans in the United States. They are, we just call them children experiencing foster care. He, he said that at first he was really triggered. I'm not an orphan. And I think that's why that we took the word orphan away in in America, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's something like some negative connotation, which I, that is so absurd that there would be God in the Bible mentions 280 times, like helping the orphan and the poor, right? Like this is like his biggest clarion call. Like what is true religion? How do you, how do you serve and love and help the most vulnerable in your society? What's more vulnerable than an orphan? And he said that it sat with him and that at first he was really annoyed by the term orphan. He realized I'm an actual orphan and had to mourn this reality and like 
process and take on and was like, wow, like I'm that orphan that like every Disney Mm. story makes a story about, you know? Yeah. There's amazing organizations out there and just being this awareness is the main point. So you letting me talk about it on your podcast, your audience is such a gift for him because this is all that needs to be done. We don't even need more money put into this issue. We just need new thoughts to be thought and we need to become aware of the impact of some of our trying to help. Right. And I've definitely experienced the difference between people who are extremely intentional and thoughtful about what they're doing and not as much. And and like my greatest experience with trade, not aid and with doing something that's so purposeful and intentional was when I went to Rwanda with Kate Spade and they were they did great education with us before of like, please don't do this. Please don't say this, but focus on these things. And then they explained why it was so important for the artisans to own the factory that they worked in and that you were enabling the women there to, at fair trade prices, create products that were then sold that revived the community. And then they were able to pay for childcare for their kids. And the whole the whole way that they explained the infrastructure and what they were doing there and why it was so important to not just come in and hand people stuff, mm-hmm. but to enable them to revive their this little town in Rwanda. It was just, it was so cool to see all of the, the domino effect of doing things in a really thoughtful, intentional way. So, and then other, other places, kind of like what you've mentioned before, where it feels a little more like, okay, here's your moment, take your selfie. You're like, I think I'm doing something good, but this feels weird. So, I mean, I think what you're doing is so amazing because it's giving people not just the, the yeah, here's the problem, but then here's what to look for. Here's what to ask for. So I would love to hear if you have maybe like a story of someone who kind of realized, oh, we're not doing this the right way or we want to change these things and then what it looked like once they changed. Like that would be really cool to hear. I'd love to talk about that. So one of my heroes in the nonprofit sector is my friend, Caroline Bordeaux. She runs this incredible organization called Miracle Foundation. And it is an amazing organization. Again, like a best in class if you want to give to, totally family-based. But she came very competent, dynamic, lovely, uh, charismatic woman and heart of gold. And she went to India and saw these kids laying in these beds, no one holding them atrophying. She was like, this is horrible. So she came in and built this whirlwind of a successful nonprofit building the best in class orphanages you've ever seen. I mean, they were like ran like, like four seasons. I mean, I'm teasing, but you know what I mean? Like at the end of the day, she created this amazing organization that took such good care of these children. And then she found out that she was actually creating family separation by creating such amazingly well-ran orphanages. Mm. Parents were like relinquishing their children. And she was just so incredibly humble in her response. It was like immediately like, what do I do? And just shifted into this work and has taken a leadership in this orphan myth idea and going to do more campaigning and helping others and getting funders. And like, we need to create awareness. We need to shift the the main focus is to get donors to shift their, what their money goes to, right? Don't sponsor a kid in orphanage. Don't build a new orphanage wing and don't do the short-term missions. But it's, it's not that quick to just say it so cavalierly we can't just be like that's all there because every situation is a little different it's much more about let's go on this journey together and let's ask all the right questions and be so thoughtful i love to get such a good experience in rwanda with kate spade they are awesome kate spade does great work i i the founders a friend of mine uh not kate but paula 
I feel like one of the things that Paula Bell and I've talked about a little bit is just like when the, when you go in the world of commerce, people and you're a big brand, a big successful brand like that. I've worked with a lot of major brands that have done charitable work. People are just looking for them to fail and pick out, yeah, well, you're a hypocrite. Like someone could go to my Instagram right now and see that I spent a month this summer in Africa and I have a selfie with the little African village kids that I was playing with. I spent a whole month there doing humanitarian work. And these kids were not in an institution. They were community kids. But the point is like someone go, oh, look at you, self-aggrandizing your involvement. No, they became my friends and they were really cute photos. And I want people to come out and fall in love with the people in Swatini. And we're going to host a lot of incredibly impactful, talented people, right? Mm-hmm. To come out there in the future. I hope you and your family can come one day. And I wanted to broadcast this opportunity and tell people about it and share with my community and fall in love with these people on the other side of the world, but not in a way that like made them feel less than or like, oh, look at them as my equals, as my friends, the beauty of them. And the selfie I took with these kids singing about God and his grace and his abundance. And and I was trying to talk about their incredible attitude and how much it impacted me and almost was like convicting me to be a more grateful human being and trust God more because of the first world problems that I pet am so petty about. And the point is someone could always point out something that we do. Well, Hey, what if you never even went there instead of flying all your families over there, you just donated the money. Well, great point. Let's have a conversation about that. And by the way, uh, maybe just sending the money isn't helpful and it might enable. And like, what do you send the money to? These questions, right. Are all on deck. It's not that one person is some authority and knows all the answers. I think it's more of, the heart of we really just want to help and we will get to the truth together if that's our main aim. We will learn from them. We will ideate, we'll pivot when we learn. And so Carolyn's one of those amazing heroes in my my book and has now created the most amazing outcomes in India. I mean, has changed policies, has worked with government, has created a movement and has seen thousands of kids get into families. I mean, it's just stunning. The more that we go along trying to help i feel like i i don't know you and i both are fans of the chosen but i just went and saw mm. the new season premiere you know of the chosen oh i really wanted to see that too but it's, oh, know, it's not it's, allowing it you, but, you can't wait yeah, yeah you can't, you got to go to in theaters but in, the, in your your home bed rest but the this beautiful premiere without any spoiler alert there's the scene where he we all know because read the new testament so i feel like <laughs> not giving away anything proprietary but when he calls the apostles into their ministry of like go out and teach my sheep yeah. right i remember this just the beauty of seeing the characters struggle and wrestle with how are we going to do this and when i've never healed people and i've never done missionary work and and he was telling them to go without any food or raiment and just trust god to be their provision and their provider right in a real sense, I think that's the call God has on all of us as we are real, because true religion, he says, my religion is how you love each other, literally, and how yeah. you serve the poor and the widow and the and the orphan. That's like actually what his words are over and over and over in the Bible. And I think nobody would deny that. Like, it's not about what we eat or drink and the external legalistic stuff that we do. And if we say these words and if we do these rituals and like all of that stuff is only helpful if it brings you closer to a heart that actually does the loving of others better. Right, right. Those are just totally those are just like levers to get your heart to be like God so that you'll actually be in relationship with others like he is and with him like he is. He says all other laws, this law transcends them all and it's love God, love thyself and thy neighbor. And in order to love 
yourself, you have to love your neighbor well. I've struggled with self-love. And it's funny because somebody in my life recently, we, we were having a conflict and they were saying how they love themselves. But while doing it, had so much contempt for me. And I remember thinking, one of the greatest indications of self-love is actually how you treat others. So you can say you mm-hmm. love yourself, but but you could, and you might, you might love certain things about yourself, but you probably need to learn to love yourself deeper if you're in contempt of others. You know what I mean? That's probably a huge sign of self-love. And I usually, for sure, I have struggled to love people as well as I want for sure, but I usually focus on not loving myself, which then bleeds out and sideways on how I don't, can't love others as well, right? What's interesting is it's, it's a whole, it's almost like a virtuous cycle in both ways. The more you love others, the more that you can love yourself. The more you love yourself, the better you can love others. And it's a reverse. And all of that comes from God. My Christian friends talk about how the cross is like the alignment here. And then the cross this way is our alignment laterally with each other and Mm. will symbol to me. But I think that in the chosen episode where they're all just in paralysis and fear and anxiety about what they're going to do. And he just talks about God. They need to learn to trust God as their provision and their provider. And I feel the same way when you're trying to do good and do his work, you're going to mess yeah. up. You're going to have moments where you feel spiritual poverty and you, your pride shows up and your ego. I mean, and in the chosen, they show the character development of them fighting and having insecurities and mm-hmm. having ego and they're flawed. They're human and we're human. And I don't think that, one of the ugliest things I see in the nonprofit space is sometimes when you do awareness like this, where you're calling out strategies that aren't working is then to kind of make everyone the monsters who did it wrong. And it's like, no, come on, you're in the arena trying. Let's, let's say with you, let's, let's jump in and help you pull the hand card, not freaking throw tomatoes at you because you didn't pull it right. (laughs) Yeah. I think that the spirit of all this is the important part. And I hope that message isn't lost as I share this insight because I, I just am so grateful to the those little Italian nuns that took care of Marcus. Like, I just want to kiss them. I can't believe they did that. You know, they're, they're amazing. I can't imagine their, their lives serving those kids. And how can we as donors influence so that Marcus doesn't become a number and he can be home with his mom yeah. at night? Yeah, yeah. And I, I agree that I think sometimes... That's one of Satan's greatest tricks is to make you feel like, oh, if you say it just a little bit wrong or you have a little bit of a flaw or if someone can point out a weakness, then it's all for nothing. Then you might as well just like crawl back into your little hole. And in the cancel culture world that we live in where it's like, but I love what you said, you're going to do something wrong at some point, but better to do as much good as you can and then learn along the way than shrink back and do nothing. And I love that that is such a big part of what you're crusading is trying to teach people, let's keep doing good, but just be aware along the way. Yeah. And and when we see flaws, fix them and be willing to have the humility to say, how can we do this better? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm so grateful for the people that have been gracious with me on my journey, not just in my humanitarian work or my professional career, because I've had amazing people have so much generosity of spirit towards me when I've messed up or had ego or not handled things as well or made bad decisions as a leader. And they're just like, man, if I was in your shoes, I could totally see me doing that. And let me just love you anyway. And let me communicate to you how you can do it better while loving you, choosing you. You know, that that's just like, I've had so many people like that be so good to me, but also on a personal level, like in relationship and in dynamic, those who are just like, 
give the benefit of the doubt and give the grace and they, and it's so inspiring. You become better because of these people. And they're like, I know you're hurting and you did this thing and it hurt me. And I did this too. And just that, that mutual care and that, that, that bridge that is built and that love that just is free flowing is so inspiring. And that's so where Jesus lies. I feel like, and we have to do it first for ourselves and it's hard, man. Like if I find out I've hurt someone or let someone down that I, that, that I love, I just go straight to shame and then sometimes get really defensive, especially if their hurt comes as an attack or anger or mm-hmm. in any way their hurt is also trying to harm me. Right. Cause people hurt people, hurt people. But if I did something and and unintentionally or intentionally hurt someone the gift it is to go to god and the atonement and be like hey i uh messed up here i need you <laughs> i think he like yeah. kind of away relishes those moments because that's where he can be in such deep relationship with them that's when we need him most you know is when yeah, we- i totally agree well Lindsay. I have just really enjoyed learning all of this and talking to you in even greater detail. And so I have one last question for you. And that is, if there's one message that you want people listening to this episode to remember, what do you want that one message to be? Ooh, that's such a good question. Thank you for asking it. I think the one message I would say is that the highest law under God is to love and love, love will dictate the right steps. Even if you fumble and take wrong, love, love will guide you home. Love will guide you back to the truth and the right thing, the right thing to do and the right way to be. And and it's probably a message I just try, I'm trying so hard to live every day myself. So that'd probably be the biggest message is just as we want to spread love in the world, loving yourself and will help you do that in a way that's humble and we can do good better. That would be probably the biggest message. I love that. So where can people find you if they want to connect with you or follow what you're doing or learn more about the Orphan Myth or or this new venture that you have or anything like that? Yeah, thank you. They can go to orphanmyth.org to find out more. And there's, you know, contact information there. But also for me personally, they can totally just email me, lindsay at capita, C-A-P-I-T-A dot com. And or follow me on social media, Lindsay S. Hadley. Uh, S is for my maiden name, Smoot. And L-I-N-D-S-A-Y is how I spell it. But anyway, I'd love to connect with any of your listeners and so grateful for you giving me this platform. And I love all that you and Neil do. You guys are like superheroes. You guys are making such a difference in the world. And your vulnerability, I've connected with you so much over. You're just being so honest about all your struggles and the fact that you've shared it so broadly is so brave. I, I wish more people had the the breadth of courage that you have. I'm so grateful for you as a friend. Corinne. I'm so excited for this baby. Thank you. <laughs> Me too. Well, thank you again. And we'll put all of these resources that we talked about too, the the website and everything in the show notes too. So if people want to go there, they can find that too. But and and a link to your TED talk as well. So oh, if they want to share that in in kind of like oh, a but that'd it was be like amazing. a 15, 20 minute, you yeah. know very easily digestible yeah yeah it's a how long 11 minutes yeah oh 11 minutes even better (laughs) yeah so then if you want to share that message with others that that's a really easy doable thing oh thank you thanks thank you Lindsay. merry christmas i love you thank you merry christmas to you too take care hon thanks so much for listening to mint arrow messages Make sure you follow us on Instagram at Mint Arrow. 
subscribe to our Apple podcast and rate and review us if you like us. And to get show notes, go to mintarrow.com slash podcast. And you can even sign up to get show notes emailed right to your inbox. And we'll email you every time there's a new episode. Oh, 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 oh,